This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to The Plays The Thing here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I'm joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi, Tim, welcome back to the show. Thanks, David. It's good to be here. Thank you, David. We're here to discuss Macbeth, Act 2. Well, we're here to finish talking about Act 1 and then discuss Act 2. Before we start, though, I need to know, which character from Macbeth do you each see yourself in the most? (laughs) (laughs) Man, I had to say, that's loaded for Heidi, because there's basically one female character. Right? She can see right? herself. She can see I herself could in see Macbeth. myself as Macduff, I guess, or Macduff's <laughs> wife, I guess. But I, no, I really am kind of. I mean, I'm not like Lady Macbeth, but I'm kind of pragmatic about power. Yep. Well, maybe <laughs> my goals when yeah, it comes yeah. to things that I want out of life, I really can be, and I can be like very, very fiercely protective of people I care about's goals and what they want. And and a bit ruthless about that, honestly. So I'm not going to shy away that there's a little bit of Lady Macbeth in me. Tim, I got to say that when I think about you, the character that most that I think you are most like is probably um, the porter. <laughs> <laughs> knock, 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 knock. Better than murderer too, I guess. Yeah, right. <laughs> or right. How about you could be. A captain in Duncan's army. Yeah, that right. would be lame. Mm-mm. Or how about an old man? <laughs> Does old man even yeah, have a speaking one? A, I remember reading that today, being like, "Who is this guy? This old? <laughs> Does he show up anywhere else in the in the whole play?" <laughs> um, okay, so we do need to finish up Act One. I promised we would just dive in, so we'd have some time on Act Two. Act Two is the act where, spoiler alert, the 
deed is done um, at the end of scene uh, 2.1. But we need to cover um, 1.6 and 1.7, I believe. Is that we left off after 1.5? Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah, okay, that's they're not right. terribly long scenes, but I did promise you that we would do that. And you both being very needy people, um, you know, <laughs> dealing with talent is a difficult thing, isn't it, Tim? Um, it is. It really is. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but you guys want to talk about six and seven. So um, given that you wanted to talk about it so much, I'm just going to ask you, what is it that you wanted to talk about so much in six and seven? And I don't say that as if like, why would you want to talk about six and seven? But it's, Instead, you both seem to have something on your mind that you need to get off. Well, I was going to say off your chest, which I just mixed my metaphors. But uh, where do you, where, Tim? I'll let you start this. Is there what is the particular, um, what what particularly about scene six and seven is moving to you, is inspiring to you, is challenging to you, is worth discussing in your mind? I'm most I'm most interested in scene seven because. I love that beautiful monologue at the top of scene seven. And I love the exchange between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth Mm -hmm. at the end. So basically seven is Macbeth having like this beautiful argument with himself about whether or not to kill Duncan. And his argument I think is worth exploring. I think the three of us maybe should take some time and explore kind of like, what are the steps through which he argues? Hmm. He lands on, I am not going to kill the king. I have no spurs to prick the side of my intent, but vaulting ambition. Lady Macbeth comes on and does not accept that answer. And yeah, some of the most potent language in the whole play is found in that exchange. And after that exchange, Macbeth, I am settled up and bent up each corporeal, corporeal agent to this terrible feat. He's going to do it. They're back in alignment again. He's going to do it. And of course, that kind of vaults us into Act 2, mm. which is so, largely about the, the murder of Duncan and the aftermath and the cover-up of the murder. Mm-hmm. Heidi, are you good with jumping into 7? 7? Absolutely. Let's go. <clears throat> okay. Um, why don't you guys, to get us started, Tim, why don't you um, actually, just for fun, I'm going to invert that. Heidi, why don't you play Macbeth and then really? Tim, you play Lady Macbeth? Well, you already said that you were most like Lady Macbeth, so uh-huh. now we have to have you look at yourself in the mirror um, as a different, <laughs> as the other character. And then let's read the first. Um, let's read the first. 50 to 60 lines um, together. I'll let you guys perform that. And then, um, or here's an idea. Here's, Can I, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, what we could do is we could have each of you read Macbeth's soliloquy there, argument to himself. And then we could, I, we could look at how you read it differently and use that as a jumping off point to, to, dis, to discuss the argument. Oh, oh that's kind of fun. Okay, let's do that. So Heidi, you jump in, you read it first, and then Tim, I'll let you do your version of it, how you read it, and then we can compare notes and think about, you know, almost as if you were, Tim, if you were directing the scene, you might read through it and then kind of work through the argument and the choices that you're making and how that reflects the argument and that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Okay, so Heidi, I will let you go first. Ladies first. If it were done when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. 
if the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with his surcease success, that but this blow might be the be-all and the end-all here. But here upon this bank and shoal of time, we did jump the life to come. But in these cases, we still have judgment here that we but teach bloody instructions, which being taught, return to plague the inventor. This even-handed justice commends the ingredients of our poison chalice to our own lips. He's here in double trust. First, as I am his kinsman and his subject, strong both against the deed, then as his host, who should against his murderer shut the door, not bear the knife myself. Besides, this Duncan hath borne his faculties so meek, hath been so clear in his great office, that his virtues will plead like angels, trumpet-tongued against the deep damnation of his taking off, and pity like a naked newborn babe striding the blast, or heaven's cherubim, horsed upon the sightless couriers of the air, shall blow the horrid deed in every eye that tears shall drown the wind. I have no spur to prick the sides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition which o'erleaps itself and falls on the other. And then Lady Macbeth enters. Mm-hmm. And then he's brought out of his reverie. Tim, mm-hmm. why don't you uh, take a shot at this? So again, this is the first uh, 27 lines or so for people who want to go follow along. If it were done, when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. If the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with his surcease success, that but this blow might be the be-all and the end-all here. But here, upon this bank and shoal of time, we'll jump the life to come. But in these cases, we still have judgment here. That we but teach blood instruction, which being taught, return to plague the inventor. This even-handed justice commends the ingredients of our poison chalice to our own lips. He's here in double trust. First, as I am his kinsman and his subject, strong both against the deed, then as his host who should against the murderer shut the door, not bear the knife myself. Besides, this Duncan hath borne his faculties so meek, hath been so clear in his great office that his virtues will plead like angels, trumpet-tongued against the deep damnation of his taking off, and pity like a naked newborn babe striding the blast, or heaven's cherubim, horsed upon the sightless couriers of the air, shall blow the horrid deed in every eye, that tears shall drown the wind. I have no spur to prick the sides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition, which or leaps itself and falls on the other. How now? What news? <laughs> <laughs> Tim, um, you went second. So I'd love to hear from you um, in what ways you felt like maybe you needed to 
do you like that you as she was reading you were thinking okay i might do this differently or um you knew going in you were going to do something and she did it differently so in other words can you respond to her reading of it and how your how her reading maybe have impacted your reading well i i think in every other situation it probably would have affected my reading but i've said this monologue so many times um that I've got grooves in this monologue. Like, you know, I played Macbeth and I designed how I was going to read the monologue. And sometimes even today I'll be driving down the road and I'll kind of try to pull from my cachet of Shakespeare and recite it to the window shield. And so I've got the way that I did it. I think if Heidi and I were both reading a monologue that I had not, been very well acquainted with i would have kind of like listened and like maybe i don't know i i I would have made it up a little bit more on the fly i can't even make this like the the beat changes in this monologue up for myself anymore because they're just so i've just worn grooves in this in this monologue does that make sense yeah 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 did uh well okay heidi let me let me kind of flip the question to you then before I go back to Tim. Do you, did you hear things that he was doing and think, oh, that's interesting he did it that way or um, he made a different choice than I did or something like that? I think that this, sure, yeah, because the tone of this monologue very much like many, if not all, of Hamlet's soliloquies are very dependent on the choices that actors make. Is this monologue, is this him, is is he really sincerely asking himself this question, am I going to kill the king? Or has he already decided, uh, um, is he angry, is he pensive, is he you know, pacing around and clutching his hair, or is he kind of sitting wearily in a chair, like these these are the questions that actors make. So, but what I love about Tim's reading of it is he is the formal element of it. And because he studied it so well, he knows which lines are in jammed, like when to carry over, which syllables to accentuate so that no matter what emotional choices he's making, he has the cadence of an actor. I always feel a little bit on my back foot when I'm reading Shakespeare aloud with Tim because he's a professional <laughs> actor. And so that, and that, you know. Why that, do you think I had you thing. do it and didn't yeah. do it? <laughs> because of that. I know. I know. Because yeah. I'm a coward. Yeah. <laughs> no, because you like to put, give people the opportunity to be courageous. Yeah. So I mean. That's. <laughs> <laughs> exactly oh, <yes>. exactly <laughs> so that i think as i'm listening to tim read it it's just such a pleasure that that goes back to the form and the content of shakespeare right it's such a pleasure to hear tim read shakespeare because he's trained in it and um so it's kind of like no matter what emotional choice you make about hamlet's mo- or excuse me about macbeth's motives here there's still just this great pleasure in hearing well-read lines Hmm. So good job, Tim. Thank you. I have I have a, a He's bowing. follow-up question. <laughs> um, it seems to me with this monologue, and let's say let's compare it to the to be or not to be speech from Hamlet. Um, 
there are two ways that you can do these monologues. One of them is, and I think the two views are kind of, they're reliant upon your view of, of human nature and what you think Shakespeare thinks about human nature. So let me lay the two out. Um, I think you could make a case that Shakespeare has a view of human nature that is something like passion overrides uh, rationality. Not that they're divorced, but passion, when they come in conflict, passion wins. And I would cite um, Romeo and Juliet, like know what bad business it is for them to fall in love. It doesn't matter from the moment they see each other they are together and nothing could pry them apart, even though they rationally know we, we ought not. It's going to mean our death or at least great suffering. Hmm. So that one view is kind of like passion first. The other view is no, human beings are rational creatures and we argue to ourselves and Shakespeare uses opportunities like to be or not to be, or the, if it were done, when tis done, it, he uses these opportunities to kind of expose publicly the kind of syllogistic sorts of steps that the human mind takes while having an argument about something important, like Macbeth, am I going to kill Duncan? And so it seems to me like if in deciding how you're going to do this monologue, you kind of have to pre-decide what do you think Shakespeare thinks Macbeth's like essential nature is. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So have you seen the new film version with um, Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard? No. Have you? I have. It's, it's a very good version. You have to use some discretion. Uh, in watching it with young children, but it's I would just the mood of it. What David last week you described, kind of that feeling of fog, kind of the Beowulf like feeling that you get with Macbeth. I absolutely yeah. relate to that. I have the same imagery in my head, just like nighttime and big kind of primitive landscape and um, fog, and they capture that really well in the movie. But Marion Cotillard, who is magnificent as Lady Macbeth. And absolutely stunningly beautiful, and I love her yeah, in general. Yeah, she's usually amazing. She is. She was. I thought she was great as Lady Macbeth. But I watched an interview with her when she talked about learning the part and how it was so hard for her because she's not. She's English is a second language to her uh. because she's French, and they cast her in the part because they wanted to give kind of a foreign other kind of ethos to Lady Macbeth. Um, and they wanted her to, it, it to be very obvious that she was a foreign woman brought into the land to marry Macbeth. Mm-hmm. And so she has an accent. Um, and it's not even a French accent. It's kind of a, like this exotic uh, accent. But anyway, she talked about how she had to study the lines because she didn't understand Shakespeare's English. She didn't get the idioms. She didn't understand the syntax. It was, she said it was like relearning a foreign language. 
And so it took her months to prepare for this part so that she could inhabit the language in the play. And she said, I knew how Lady Macbeth felt, but I couldn't get into, I I couldn't play her well until I could fully inhabit Shakespearean English, which is much different from modern English, obviously. We all know that. So, and I thought that was really interesting and and speaks to your point that it isn't always just about the character's motivation. Uh, Some of it is about the form as well. Yes. And yeah. and and the actual linguish, linguistic acrobatics and the puns and the idioms and all the things that come with the kind of Shakespeare's mastery of language as well as content. Yeah, one of the things that I don't think gets talked about enough about Shakespeare is the way form creates tone in his work or mood. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's true of a lot of poets. I mean, often you know, there's the images themselves. That they can help create the tone or the mood that you know in which you're supposed to read or come away with or experience the poem or the play or whatever it is. Um, but in a way, unlike almost any other art form, I think the form itself um, can can clue you into to that tone or that mood. So um, I'm trying to think. You know, like in comedies, it's not necessarily the image itself. It's the it's the sort of the way he plays with yeah. that clues you into the fact that this guy is meant to be a clown, for example, or a fool or whatever it mm-hmm. is, or this person is someone we're supposed to take seriously or not take seriously. Um, and it's not always the words that they're saying. In fact, it's almost never the words that they're saying because they're may not be believable um, or maybe not be, may not be trustworthy, but it's the, the form, the, the formal elements that kind of clue you into to the not just the way you're supposed to read it, but the mood, the feeling, the the mm-hmm. experience you're supposed to have. Like when you read poems, like if you read a good Richard Wilbur poem, for example, the way he plays with the language is telling you so much about the mood, the way you're supposed to feel about it. And that's going to inform the experience. That's why I think when we talk about Shakespeare and poetry and things like that, talking with students or even thinking ourselves about the kind of experience we're kind of naturally or instinctively having is actually really valuable because you're, we're instinctively and intellectually responding to the formal elements when we talk about the, our first experiences with something. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like yeah. our, we are instinctively, maybe, maybe our training informs that instinct a, a little bit or a lot, but we are instinctively responding to the form in a way that we can't always explain but that's the that is the definition of the experience that we're having. That's what defines it. So recognizing that I think can go a long way towards even just getting a sense of the power of what Shakespeare is trying to actively do in the, mo- in the mood. I kind of rambled there at the end, but I don't know if you're trying if you get what I'm saying. Yes, absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. So I think the big this monologue is very structured, and it's mm-hmm. a, yeah, it's a it's a. It's a series of syllogisms. But you can imagine if the actor made the choice that, and Heidi, you've suggested this. I don't know if you believe this, but you've at least suggested that, like, maybe Macbeth's already resolved. He's going he's gonna to do it. And now he's going to give this monologue knowing that he's going to do it, and he's just going to kind of rehearse to himself the things that he ought to say instead of actually arguing with right. himself, you know? Right. And so that would sound very different if he's just kind of rehearsing an argument to himself rather than uh-huh. believing these steps. So something like, um, 
So line seven for me, but in these cases, we still have judgment here that we uh-huh. would teach bloody instructions. That can be, um, I would think the actor would kind of rush through that hastily. This is a perfunctory thing that I know that I should say to myself. Um, but in these cases, we still have judgment here that we would teach bloody instruction, which being taught, return to plague the inventor. I mean, I think it's, it would be hard to pull it off well because I believe we are meant to see this is a legitimate argument, a, not just a rehearsal of an argument, but a legitimate argument. However, I can imagine a talented actor saying, no, Macbeth's, Macbeth, we've already seen, he's convinced that he needs to do what he needs to do to become king. He needs to take the murder of Duncan in his own hands. Thus, all of this, this whole monologue, really, it's just a rehearsal. He's just going to like speak with a voice that's not really his own. Mm-hmm. So, I think this is along those same lines that, of what you're saying. If it's not, forgive me, but it, it's, it's what your comments made me think about. Do you think that at the core... Uh, so you know how when you're trying to convince yourself, when you're having a debate with yourself about whether you should do something or not do something, especially when you sort of instinctively know it's not the right thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. But you kind of like... There's the one... You, you either want... You sort of... You kind of like want to do either either do or not do the thing and to either do the opposite. You have to convince yourself or give yourself some... Um, you can make the argument that convinces yourself you know, it's okay, that rationalizes or, or whatever. Right. Do, instinctively, do you, which side do you think Macbeth is sort of instinctively falling on? Does he want to kill the king, but he has to convince himself not to? Or does he not want to kill the king and he's trying to convince himself and he's having this thing where he's... Yeah, I love this I say trying to kill himself, to, kill, to convince himself. But so which side does he instinctively or inherently or, you know, in uh-huh. his soul want to do or not do? Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right. I, what I do really, you think, Heidi? <laughs> so when I teach this play, the conversation that I have with my students that I think opens up this play to them maybe more than any other question is when we get to act two, scene one, I'll turn to this. All right, excuse me. When we get to act two, is it scene, whatever scene it is in which they kill Duncan. And I asked this, my students, we're going to stop here. And I want you to tell me at what point did Macbeth go so far that he couldn't turn back? Mm. At what point is his soul lost in this play? <laughs> so <laughs> I, Heidi, it's just such a great question because there's this one, there's that line Mm-hmm. I'm steeped in blood so far that turning back would be as tedious as to go or. Yes. Like, he literally talks about he's done all it, the carnages behind him and now more carnages in front of him to turn back to repent would be harder now than just to blaze forward and to hack away. Right. Yes. Anyway. Like he's, anyway. Yeah, exact that's exactly right. That that exact line that is is it when he does the deed? Is that the moment that he's lost? Is it when is it the moment when he almost repents and then Lady Macbeth persuades him? Or 
or just uncovers his own resolve that was always there to begin with? Is it before that? Is it when he sees the witches? Is it when he, I mean, there's so many points in this play. play Exactly. Like, does it, is, is it inevitable in scene one, when the witches talk about looking for Macbeth is, are they looking for Macbeth because they know his soul is already lost? Right. So this question that you're asking is, I think one of the main existential questions of the play. So I, I don't know that I could answer it, but in a way your question is like a little cosmos of that larger question. Hmm. I want to, I want to answer your question. <laughs> it's way too early. It's way too early, but well, we're talking I about act just... two today. So you can bridge right? the gap if we need yeah. to. I think, um, and maybe we could just kind of like, just maybe I could just kind of prelude this and we could talk about it a little bit further when we get there. I think he's, there is still a conscience that is alive in Macbeth until tomorrow and tomorrow, and tomorrow. tomorrow creeps in this petty pace. Because it, that, part of the reason that monologue is so powerful is because, spoiler alert, it's right on the heels of Lady Macbeth's death. Right. He gets the news she has died. That's, is that act four? I think it's it's, it, it's either late four or top of five. Okay. It's five, yeah. Heidi. Well, it's very close. If not, it's very close. Yeah, you're right. Anyway, keep going. I just figured I'd guess four because they're always long. No, it's five. It's five because she is the all the perfumes of Arabia. That the out damn spot scene is Act Five, Scene One. So, ah, okay. Anyway, yeah. Carry I on. think part of the reason that monologue is so so hard is because this is sort of like the the light is leaving his body for the last time and if you look at his actions after that there's no remorse there's no arguing with himself there's no sights of banquo you know there's mm-hmm. none of that just it's just pure warfare against macduff after that Anyway, I don't want to put us too far ahead since we're still in two, but I, I might argue for that. So to take us then to two, I think that that moment is when he kills Duncan. And and let's see, this is act two, scene two. And I think it's in the Macbeth doth murder sleep speech. Huh. That's when he's... That. This is when I think he recognizes that he has that. This is when I think his doom is irrevocable, and he recognizes it. That's in so two, I think it's two the deed line. itself. So it, this is two two yeah, in okay. line thirty three. Methought I heard a voice cry, "Sleep no more, Macbeth doth murder sleep." The innocent sleep, sleep that knits up the raveled sleeve of care, the death of each day's life, sore labor's bath, balm of hurt minds, great nature's second course, chief nourisher in life's feast. So sleep is a major theme of this play. Sleep is a really big deal because sleep is like this, um, this objective correlative to restoration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the restoring of a whole of the whole person, the restoring of a whole mind and body, which is now lost to Macbeth forever. 
And I think it is this speech that he recognizes it. So I think it's not until he does the deed that he's actually gone past redemption. Isn't sleep even used by like in the early church for the, in the early church fathers as like a metaphor or tied to repentance or something like that too? And death and death. You think, I mean, in the, in the prayer book, you know, this, you wake up every day and thank God that you didn't experience the real grave, just the grave that is representative represented through sleep. Um, So that, and, and from this point on, Macbeth doesn't ever sleep again in the play. And Lady Macbeth obviously has in some, you know, she, she loses her sleep. She loses sleep too. The whole play takes place mostly at night when people are awake, when they should be asleep, which then goes to that inversion of nature again, that theme. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To your point, Heidi, he's saying this, these lines about sleep no bore, Macbeth does murder sleep. He's saying this with having just done the deed Mm-hmm. having bloody daggers in his hand, he is at most risk of being caught right now. And he's almost in this, I read that as a psychotic break for yes. sure. Mm-hmm. Because why in the world are we giving this monologue about like the benefits of sleep in the middle, like right after you've committed the murder, there's no time to be wasted here. We need to wash up. We've got to put the daggers away. We've got to put it on this is 2.2, right? Blame it on mm-hmm. With that? Yeah. 2.2, yep. right? 2.2. Yeah. All of these things are like absolute pressing needs, but Macbeth is so beside himself mm-hmm. seeing what lies in front of him that he's not consumed with accomplishing any of those things. And Lady Macbeth kind of has to like clean everything up because he's just snapped. Right. Yes. Right. And he has an, a an existential identity crisis at this point too. Macbeth does murder sleep. And then the next lines, this, if we're saying the next line in line 37, I think is Lady Macbeth saying, what do you mean? And then Macbeth goes on. This is right after the Macbeth does murder speech scene and um, speech. And he says, still it cried sleep no more to all the house. Gloms has mur- hath murdered sleep and therefore Cawdor shall sleep no more. Macbeth shall sleep no more. So he's going through the, his, the, how he has been named by the witches here questioning which of me he's fragmented. This is to your point about having a psychotic break. He's speaking of himself in the third person and he's speaking of himself as three different people in the same progression that the witches did. Hmm. That's a great point. That's a great point, Heidi. I to go back. I, I think I think Macbeth has absolutely had a psychotic break here. I think that he could turn back. I mean, as like absolutely shattered as he is, hmm. I still think he could turn back. There's still something alive in him, his conscience, enough that he could turn back even after this. I don't think in this particular scene, because he's just so, he's just deranged. Right. But I think like maybe when Macduff shows up, there's still, I think, the possibility that he could say, I repent, it was me. You know, I, 
please, you know, he, and he can ask God for forgiveness. So right. I think that even that opportunity doesn't even glimmer to him after Lady Macbeth dies. I think that like mm-hmm. all this darkness after well, Lady that's- that is the moment of despair and right. complete dehumanization. I think you're exactly right about that. Um, certainly. Well, and okay, so if that's the case, if what's happening here is in the Macbeth death, murder, sleep, and the, you know, if that if that's a psychotic issue, that's a psychological mm-hmm. thing that's happening, then a kind of a trauma response to what right. he's done. So. Along with that, though, and it, there's all these omens that are happening, almost like for the, for those who listened along with Julius Caesar, there's there's a similar kind of thing that happens in Macbeth when nature itself cries out against the deed. There's there's these portents that happen, these things that happen to invert nature. Um, uh, at, in the very first lines of Act Two, Scene Two, Lady Macbeth says, um, "Heart." that she hears the owl that shrieked, the fatal bellman that hears... There's there's all these different portents. In fact, there's a whole scene dedicated to it in Act 2, which lots of directors cut. Uh, and that is the old man scene. Act mm. 2, scene 4, the one y'all that, that you guys referenced earlier. <laughs> when Ross is having a conversation with an old man about all the ways that nature has cried out against the deed that has been done against the king, but they don't know that it's happened yet. Right. So it's a very well, supernatural experience. Go ahead. Well, that just reminds me of the beginning of 2.1 where Banquo, before, before Macbeth has even come in, uh-huh. um, he says, um, he's talking about how he's had the bad dreams or something like that. Mm-hmm. Let's see. What does he say? Um, a heavy summons lies like lead upon me and yet I would not sleep. And then he says, merciful powers restrain in me the cursed thoughts that nature gives way to in repose. Yes, and so there's that that idea being t- that nature itself is um, playing some sort of a role here, right? But carrying with it, you know, the the cursed thoughts. Right. Later on, we hear that the horses were screaming, like that. There's these things are happening that's against nature. Again, there's that in, that inversion that how everything kind of the trajectory of the play is downward, um, so, and things are coming unraveled in nature itself. So how does that then play in, Tim, this is a real question for you, to kind of Macbeth's state of mind? As opposed to a rhetorical here. one? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I'm not really trying to make a point. I, I would say <laughs> I, I'm, I'm arguing that he's lost beyond redemption here. And Tim is arguing, no, he's still a human. At that point. Right. And he still could repent. And so... Uh, do, do all these supernatural portents play into his state of mind here and the deed that he has done here? Or is this more just a psychological study? Yeah, because, I, I, okay, I've got a question related to this. Yeah. So I'll let you answer that first, <laughs> yeah. Tim, and then I've got a kind of a bigger picture. Well, it's the same question, sort of, but with a bigger picture take. So, I, Tim, I'll let you answer, and then I want to bring something so up. So, Heidi, Heidi, can you say that back? I'm not quite sure I understand. Do, does how do, you, how do you interpret, then, the... Um, all of the portents and the things that are happening in nature, the supernatural way that the supernatural things that are happening in this act kind of behind the scenes. Um, does that. Do, do I think they're, that they're real or are they just kind of like 
Yeah, like that's what I'm asking. Psychological projections. Yeah, are they oh, for I, the atmosphere or are they really saying something? Macbeth, but Macbeth has done something that can't be undone. I see. I see. I, <laughs> I think they're real. Mm-hmm. And yet I think they can be undone. <laughs> what do you mean by undone? I think that the world can, I don't mean that the horse that eats the other horse in the stable, which right. is mentioned like this horrible, horrible, like graphic, unnatural act. I don't think that can be undone, but I think that the the kind of metaphysical rupture in the garment of earth mm. can be sewn back up again. It is 100% contingent upon Macbeth's repentance, if he mm. could possibly do that. I mean, just by way of contrast, I think that the Greeks would say the only way that Oedipus can like heal the rupture of the fabric of earth is by blinding himself and casting himself out of Thebes. But I think that this is... I'm like qualifying myself. I don't want to call Shakespeare a Christian poet, but he's certainly writing in a Christian era. And he's certainly, yeah, and he's certainly sympathetic. And I think that he would say, no, it's not, Oedipus's solution is not the solution, but Macbeth's repentance is the solution. Hmm. It It wouldn't undo all of the destruction of nature. But it would mm-hmm. begin to put things right again, or or yeah. a good ruler coming to the throne is the other alternative, right? Hmm. Hmm. So, not that I want to make this conversation about predestination, but um, <laughs> you, somebody somebody brought up this question of inevitability, uh-huh. <clears throat> and so I'm wondering is um, is what Macbeth did and the results. At the beginning of the play, were they inevitable? Right. Or did it, or, or, or I, I guess the other way of thinking about it, I think the other side of it would be is the, was the agency of the witches what, what sort of brought it on? I mean, it was um, without the witches, or um, I'm trying to think exactly how to frame this, but I guess the question is, is what he did inevitable? I mean, was he too far gone at the beginning of the play? Um, or You mean the moment that he steps on stage, David? Yeah, sort of. I mean, yeah, right. Yeah, right. And it, cause is that sort of metaphysical terror that you, yeah. you mentioned earlier? Is that, is that, is it torn when, you know, the, the curtain lifts? No pun uh-huh. intended, actually, now that I think about it. But, um, or is is it something that is slowly festering until it hits a breaking point? One of the great geniuses of Shakespeare is that every play, I think particularly the tragedies, uh, is in many ways a mirror up to the reader's presuppositions about the world. So, for example, what Tim just said about repentance, I believe that 100%. I believe that nobody is beyond 
redemption as long as they are breathing and alive on the earth. Even somebody as disordered as Macbeth. I'm not sure that the play believes that, though. Yeah, yeah, it's a a vital distinction. Yes. And so, but the thing about what Shakespeare does is his plays are so profoundly human that you don't even realize you're making presuppositions until you ask the question, at what point is Macbeth beyond redemption? Or if ever, right? So that's the thing I think that brings out those, like I just, of course I, of course he's not beyond redemption because he's a human, but there's clues, but there's evidence within the play that David, you're bringing up the presence of the witches, the presence of these diabolical forces, which are never one time ever met with anything transcendently good in this play. There's no warring angels that come against these demons. There's nothing, there's no presence of God in this play or light. The only thing that's supernatural is bad. So I'm not saying that that Macbeth is a nihilistic play. I'm saying that there are, there's evidence within the play that there is some questioning of that Christian framework that you mentioned, Tim. Yeah. And so, and I think that's what makes it Shakespeare just so unbelievably good. I mean, he's so good at, at his job. <laughs> Look at uh, Heidi's getting going out on the edge. With, with I love this. With so Heidi, Heidi's like. They hired the right man. I'll tell you that. <laughs> they hired the right man. Good Whoever job commissioned that play. Right? Who are the people that have the long list of ways to keep Shakespeare preserved in the world forever? <laughs> we need him because that this is such, this is a play that questions those things, not not in a despairing sense, but it just brings it to the surface what you believe about life. I think if I had to bet on which one it is, hiding, mm-hmm. it's, you know, yes. I, I Let me be clear. Um, could Macbeth repent and have the world kind of be sewn back together? Or are the forces of evil like fates in mm-hmm. that they going to get what has been decreed. Do I, okay, so I'm going to like have to choose between those two things? It's impossible to choose. It's, I know, it's, I know, I know. it's so hard. Like, I'm kind of <laughs> making an argument as if I'm making an argument that Macbeth can repent because I think, because I want that to be true. I want it be, to be true. And part mm-hmm. of it, I mean, I'll be totally honest. It's like, when I play Macbeth, I want to find like, there's like a glimmer of hope and like yeah. a future yeah. for him, you know? But maybe it's even more tragic to see this poor man be sort of like the plaything of the fates. They're just batting him around with their open claws, and he really doesn't have any say in the matter. He's going to struggle. He's going to argue with himself. He's going to argue with Lady Macbeth, but ultimately, he doesn't have any say. Like, which one of those two choices is more heartbreaking? Well, you know, the, it's, when I was talking about inevitability, the concept of the fates popped to mind. 
And I'm that's really fascinating, just whether the fates were controlling him. Because there's times in the play where he says, you know, it seems like he, I, it's beyond hopelessness that he's that he's expressing. It's like it's almost like pointlessness. Uh-huh. Um, like in two three, which we haven't talked about yet. I think I don't know that we'll get into specific scenes as much this week. But in two three, he says that line about had I but died, what is it, an hour before this chance? And then he says, from this instant, there's nothing serious in mortality. All is but toys or whatever. Is that what he says? All is but toys. Renown and grace is dead. The wine of life is drawn. Um, And he, he he almost seems to be saying, you know, he he even uses the word chance there, right? Like, like it's, you know, life is pointless. There's, there's nothing going, nothing to it. It's just chance. It's just fate. He seems to be, he seems to be, even if he doesn't, even if it's not true, he seems to be operating as if it's true. Mm-hmm. He's operating as if the fates are controlling him. And, you know, he seems to be sort of, in some ways, not just succumbing to, like, maybe, I think maybe what I'm trying to say is maybe the reason he succumbed to the, um, the argument of Lady Macbeth is because he had succumbed to his own sort of nihilistic view of the world like maybe the things are pointless and so and that the fates are just controlling him and and so that's kind of that made him susceptible mm-hmm. and then that and then that's what kind of controls his actions throughout the rest of the play yeah because he seems to keep coming back to that like all is pointless all is pointless i mean you know no, those aren't the words he says but he's talking around those concepts all the time in a way that makes me feel like he doesn't totally understand it like it's confusing like it's gray to him it's just this sense he has that all is pointless but he can't express it properly or he can't really make an argument out of it right i don't know if that makes sense yes. yeah it does well, and one thing that um, we haven't talked about too much yet that goes along with that question of fate and free will, which is a, the, you know, the tension point of Macbeth, like the existential kind of question of Macbeth. That's why I said I don't want to make it a play about predestination. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. But that, I mean, it is, that it, that's, that's huge. That determines everything about how you, the choices you make in interpreting this play based along those lines makes all the difference in how you interpret this play. So, but one thing that is, I think, an objective correlative to that in the play, and again, Shakespeare doesn't give a lot of stage direction, so when he does, you have to pay attention really closely, is the knocking that happens throughout this play. There's knocking that interrupts conversations, that interrupts action, that is... Uh, distressing and disturbing, even in reading it. Like, even if you're just, your eyes are, definitely when it's being performed, Tim, you can speak to that. But even when you're reading it, this knocking that happens kind of brings up this anxiety in the reader. Like, what's going on? What's happening off stage? Why is someone knocking all the time? Right? So that idea of there's something coming, right? The knocking, the portent of death, of the void, of darkness, of something happening that we don't understand, we can't control, that interrupts the action that's happening on the stage. Knocking's a very big deal in this play. Tim, how did you, I mean, in performing it, how did the knocking like feel on stage? Freaky. Freaked right? me out. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's terrifying. Then when, what's he, um... The porter scene, there's a lot of knocking. Yeah, there's knocking two, in the death, in the murder scene. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to, so 
the Porter scene is the beginning of two, three, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Knocking within, uh, enter a porter. There's the porter, Tim. There's you. Yeah. In two, two, yep, there's knocking all the time. There's, there's knocking in, um, in two, two as well. Lady Macbeth, I hear a knocking at the South entry. So, and sometimes it's just someone visiting, but Shakespeare doesn't ever do anything by accident. So. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I just got to say, when the when David, you were talking earlier about how form kind of is so vital to Shakespeare. It, it, I think it's just would be a fascinating. Let's do it real fast. The end of scene one, or Twitch. really most most of uh, Act Two, scene one, is Macbeth a monologue by himself recount. And having this dagger lead him toward uh, toward Duncan's chamber, the language is it's scary, but it is rhythmic and measured and um, habitual. Not not habitual. It has a rhythm to it, a predictable rhythm to it. And then after the murder. As soon as he get back, gets back on stage, everything in his lines are broken. After he's done the deed, huh. he comes back on stage. So his first line, who's there? What ho? Then Lady Macbeth, who still is not quite sure if he's done it yet. Her lines are pretty measured. They're pretty rhythmic. And then, like, look at 20 through 26. Macbeth, I have done the deed. Did thou not hear a voice? Lady Macbeth, I heard the eagle scream, the crickets cry. Did you not speak? When? Now. As it ascended, uh-huh. I. Hark. I mean, she's like, chop, 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 chop. And it's completely fraught with fears that they are already caught out. And it's right. just all yeah. broken. Yeah, there, there's this... Uh, which, which, of course, makes... As, a, as an audience person, you start asking yourself, wait, what did I miss? Mm-hmm. Or you start like questioning what was I? What you, you almost feel like you got to go back and read read it again because you then you're wait are they just paranoid or did I miss something or yeah or are they paranoid rightly and I missed it or is this all in their head or you know the, all these questions start coming up as a reader or as a, even you know as someone who's watching it on stage I guess people would interpret it in terms of how they present it differently but this the stuff you that monologue you mentioned at the end of two point one mm-hmm. is uh, one of my favorite. Um, examples of iambic pentameter in Shakespeare. Huh. Oh, Continue. Well, you just mentioned that it's very formal <laughs> and very rhythmic. Uh-huh. And it, um, usually when you want to get, or, or one of the ways that people will, you know, if you're trying to write a scene where someone's not in their right mind, you're going to do this like stopping and starting thing. You're going to make uh-huh. them stutter. You're going to make them pause a lot or whatever. But as Tim mentioned, there is this very consistent sort of iambic rhythm to it. Um, the yeah. only time when it doesn't look to me like pentameter is when he draws the dagger and he says, as this, which now I draw. Is that in jammed line? And then it just says he draws his dagger. And that looks like it's the only time when it's not pentameter. But that the iambic, you know, the whole... The whole thing is just it's a very measured thing, but it's the language, it's the it's the um the argumentation that he's doing that is where it throws it all off. So Shakespeare, you know, in this case, he uses this very consistent formal approach that's much like, you know, 
um, Mark Antony's speech or Henry V's speech or something like that. It's it's the same sort of pattern that he would have used for one of his like kingly speeches or something. But this is yeah. Macbeth diving into the depths of his own insanity in some ways, questioning what he's you know just what he's about to do and all this kind of stuff. And it's we're getting deeper and deeper as an audience person into um, into his head and into the questions that, that brings up, but because of the f- sort of formal consistency that he offers there, I think that that actually creates more of a sense of sort of tension in our, in, in us than it would be if he did the stopping and starting because it would make so much sense if we're, if there's a lot of stopping and starting and pausing and stuttering and all that kind of stuff, then we're just like, yeah, yeah. I'm right there with you. But because of that pattern, it creates this sort of, uh, dico- this tension in the dichotomy between the form and the words, between the form and the and what's going on in his head. Uh, I I think that's I just think it's really fascinating and and also and it's just I mean some of the lines are like really really striking. Oh yeah. So yeah, uh, yeah. I, I love the middle of that monologue. You can almost hear the footsteps of the reasoning. So beginning with witchcraft celebrates maybe sixty three. Um. I'm so glad you used the word um, footsteps or whatever. Mm-hmm. Witchcraft celebrates pale Hecate's offering and withered murder, alarmed by his sentinel, the wolf, whose howls his watch, thus with his stealthy pace, with Tarquin's raven- ravishing strides, toward his design, moves like yep. a ghost. Yep. And then following that, are him describing his footsteps over the stones that will carry him to Duncan. Thou sure and firm set earth, hear not my steps, which way they walk, for fear thy very stones will prate of my whereabouts and take the present horror from the time which now suits with it. It's a good thing Shakespeare had a thesaurus for the word walks. (laughs) (laughs) The footsteps, that's so good. I love that. And then it ends with a couplet, right? His resolution. Yep, yep. Hear it not, Duncan, for it is a knell that summons thee to heaven or to hell. That's so good. The man. Well, and this this is, you know, at the beginning of it, he he basically asks the central question that he does the tension, right? He says, right. Art thou but art thou but a dagger of the mind, a false creation proceeding from the heat oppressed brain? Which is an amazing couple of uh-huh. there. Um and so he he basically asks he just comes right out and asks the central question that drives much of the tension. I mean, the tension isn't really are they going to kill the guy? I mean, it's kind of, of course that's sort of we all know the guy. That's the whole yeah. point of the play. But the question is the question that keeps people coming back to it is how much of everything is in his head and how much of it is is real, you know? Yes. And he just comes right out and asks it, and then he goes into this argument that you're making here that you're pointing out to him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it starts, I mean, he, the argument starts with him questioning himself. Right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yes. And is it real? Or is this... Is right. This I just made up. Is it real? Is, and, and I see then, it here, yes. but what does that mean? Right. So that, that is the question. What is really, what is mine to own? And what am I being forced to do by some kind of malevolent force upon me? Yeah. So, yeah. and he asks the question, "Do I have to follow the dagger?" Right. And then a bell rings, knocking in bells. So out beyond, and that's when he makes the resolve, and that's when he leaves to go do the deed. So, 
that's okay. That's great. So Tim mentions this, this idea of following the steps of the argument. He mentions all these, he, you pointed out all these words of stepping and following and moving and so forth. And then, <laughs> so as you said, he's kind of following, is he, what is he following? Is he just following some level of force or something? Then the bell rings and then he says, I go and it is done. So at the end of that stretch there, where he's using all these words about walking and everything. Then the bell rings and then he says, I go as if the bell you know, the bell has to have had some kind like the of... The bell made me do it, right? The, the dagger has some made kind of me do it. Agency, the witches yeah. made me do it, yes. <laughs> but he's following, you know, that 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 idea of movement, of walking, of following until the bell rings. And then the mm. bell is the thing that like, the moment turns. It's the thing that convinces him somehow. Right. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, does that mean, did the bell wake him out of some kind of stupor? Does it put him deeper into it? Does it... Uh, there's so much that you could dive mm-hmm. into in terms of what that bell means. Right. Because that, now, um, well, now is is the bell rung by Lady Macbeth off stage? Is that part of the play, or is that part of like performance history? Is that how when you say performance history, is that a pretty common? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't know why. I don't know if that's in the text or if that's just part of the way that it's not every time, but often performed. So when they're making the plan, she does not, she gives him the plan. Screw your courage to the sticking place speech. Um, His two chamberlains will I with wine and wassels. So convinced that memory, the warder of the brain shall be a fume, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's what we always say with Shakespeare, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) (laughs) So no, the bell is not, part of their plan. Okay. She she mentions um in 2.2 right after this that which hath made them drunk hath made me bold uh-huh. what hath quenched them hath given me fire hark peace it was the owl that shrieked the fatal bellman which gives the sternest good night he is about it the doors are so i wonder i mean that seems to be at least I think it's an indication of time, like a cuckoo clock or something. That's how they know what time it is. So one thing that I guess what I'm wondering is, could it have just been the, the bellman, the, the, Mm -hmm. you know, the town clock, but for, for Macbeth, it, it becomes something more in his mind. He makes something supernatural or, or something more of it than just the bell in the town square. Right. Right. I think that, of course, that's true. But with Shakespeare, any indication of time is always important as well, because times that that idea of time lost, like time is huge in all of the tragedies and history plays, and even in some of the comedies, the idea of what, of, of time marching towards some kind of inevitable doom. And if that the audience is already going to feel that because of being at a tragedy. Right. Yeah. Um, right. And the structure of the play is very clear that it's leading kind of linearly towards some kind of irrevocable action. And so markers of time in Shakespeare, that happened. I mean, you and I talked about that in Henry V, in Henry V, David, that, and that's huge in Othello and in Hamlet too. Any kind of marker of time is always a big deal. And so the knocking without the bells, but are the markers of time, but then they're also representative of something even more existential here. Well, earlier in this monologue, he says, 
Um, now, or the now, or the one half. This is line sixty-one. Now, or the one half world, nature seems dead, and wicked yeah. dreams abuse the curtain sleep. And then he says, witchcraft celebrates pale Hecate's offerings, and withered murder, alarmed by his sentinel, the wolf, who yeah. howls his watch. Thus, with his stealthy pace, with Tarquin's ravishing strides towards his design, moves like a ghost. So this this idea of alarm, like the an alarm being summoned to action. So in some ways, I think he, he's mm-hmm perhaps being sort of mentally prepared for a bell to mean a call to action. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, oh, and if nothing else, Shakespeare's preparing the audience for it. Right. <laughs> yeah. He's saying there's, you know, at this, this is the time, this is the time of night when nature seems dead and the wicked, you know, wickedness comes alive. Um, and waiting for the, waiting for the alarm to take, to call us to action. And then it happens and he says, Oh, okay. See ya. <laughs> Marching on. The bell invites me. Right, but also it's like it's a march. It's a march for his, the bell symbol symbolizes his march to action, but it also symbolizes Duncan's summoning to heaven or to hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, we've been going for an hour and a half. Oh, this. I mean, and we're like barely well, scratching. Maybe a little the less surface. than that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's let's. I guess I should just ask you for some final thoughts on Act Two. Um, Act Two is not terribly long. We we at least touched on all four scenes in it. So, um, is there anything you want to um, make? Although I just turned to two point three, where it says Macduff says, "Awake, awake, ring the alarm bell." When he's calling <laughs> everyone to see that Duncan was dead. So that's a nice bell. little callback there by Shakespeare. <sighs> Bells and knocking. Even the same word that he, the alarm bell. Macbeth says the alarm bell calls him to action to kill Duncan, and Macduff says, "Ring the alarm bell." Dead treason has been done. You know, um, now we have to go find them, essentially or ostensibly. Um, so, anyway, that'll be my final thought. Uh, do you have um, any final thoughts? Heidi, I'll let you go first. Yes. So the porter scene is um, there's. If you are a reader of Shakespeare commentaries, as I am, the commentary commentators make a big deal about this porter scene. Scholars talk a lot about it. Uh, so, drunks and fools in Shakespeare, if you're teaching this play uh, or any of them, drunks and fools must, they often have, offer a little bit of comic relief, but they also often do something else, which is mirror back themes of the play and provide some kind of unexpected wisdom. So this porter, there's a lot to be said about the porter, but he's drunk and he talks a lot about knocking, which we were just talking about. Here's a knocking indeed, knock, 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 who's there in the name of Beelzebub. There's kind of a repetition of this knocking noise. Um, But I wanted to draw your attention to one word, which is equivocate. He he uses the word equivocator several times. And that is actually, this is one of those cases in which specialized knowledge can be kind of helpful. So during the time of Shakespeare, there was a debate, a theological debate about lying, whether or not lying is wrong, could lying ever be justified, um, which was important in the Reformation because people were being killed for mm. faith back, I mean, really a lot, Catholics and Protestants. And so this this question of equivocation, which is a certain kind of lie, um, it's that it's 
And it was a theological term at the time. To be an equivocator means to say something that's a lie in its context, but is true in another context. Meaning, if someone asked you, where's your homework? And you responded, the dog ate my homework. Would that be a lie if you specifically didn't do your homework, but you like wrote your name at the top of the paper and then shredded it in little pieces and fed it to your dog on purpose. So you tell your teacher, the dog ate my homework, right? So it is a certain kind of lie. And Jesuits, the Jesuit doctrine said that equivocating was not really lying. So if you were, you could be martyred in a state of, as a Catholic, you could be martyred for the faith or try to get out of being killed by equivocating. So telling a certain kind of lie that would be true in a different context, even though it was a lie to the question that you're being asked at the time. So that was not considered a sin. So, and I think that's important that the porter brings this up because in this scene, almost every single thing that the, that Macbeth or Lady Macbeth says is an equivocation, meaning it's a lying response. For example, that line you said, David... Um, and I know this is complicated, but I think it's really interesting and important that that little speech you talked about, but that had I but died an hour before this chance, I had lived a blessed time. So he's trying to cover up here. He's trying to say, oh, if I had died before my king died, that would, you know, I would be happy. I wish I hadn't seen this day, but everything he's yeah. saying is, in, is actually true in the context of the fact that he just murdered the king. This is his first statement of like true despair. And the audience knows it, but the other people on the stage, aside from Lady Macbeth, have no clue. Right. So it's a lie, but it's also true. It's an equivocation. So I think that the porter bringing this idea of equivocation up is important in this scene because you're seeing it over and over. So then you start asking the question, and I do this with my students, what other characters might be equivocating here? Could Banquo be equivocating? Could Macduff be equivocating? If so, how so? And that kind of opens up then the second part of the play of, of when the other characters get more involved, not just the decision to kill Duncan, which was largely just... Um, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. All right. For the sake of time, Tim, <laughs> final thoughts. I have, I have two things. I'm going to reserve the first one for next week. It's just a good story about something that happened during our performance. I think it's, it's very funny. And I think it might be a nice way to kind of get us into it next week. I just want, um, after Macbeth... After it's discovered that Duncan has killed, has died, uh, Macbeth tells everybody that he has killed the two murderers. And I just want to read these lines because they're just so beautiful. So he says, I do repent me of my fury that I did kill them. And Macduff says, wherefore did you do so? Macbeth, who can be wise, amazed, temperate and furious, loyal and neutral in a moment? No man. The expedition of my violent love outran the pauser, reason. I just think that's just so great. It's so great. Why did I kill them? I was so full of feelings that I kind of like outran the pauser, reason. I just love those lines. Right. And it's an equivocation. 
Yeah. He's actually telling the truth, just not yeah. the whole truth. Right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Hmm, that's good. So you had two final thoughts? I do, but let's pause. Let's, the other one I think is a good story. Oh, right, it's right, too right, long right. until okay. now. Yeah, yeah, Okay. And we can tell at the beginning of the next podcast. We, we, I say we can tell it at the beginning of the next podcast. We'll let Heidi tell it. Just try, to guess, try to guess what it is. Um, all right. Well, thanks to both of you for, for joining me. This is a good time. This yeah. is so fun. I love talking about this play. So thank you. Well, we have lots of good stuff going on on the Close Reads Podcast Network. We have uh, the Close Reads flagship show. Of course, we're reading Little Britches over there right now. Adam Andrews is joining us as our guest contributor over there. We've got the Daily Poem and a lot of other stuff going on. Uh, after this, on the place thing, we're going to do Othello and then The Tempest. And over on Close Reads, after Little Britches, we're going to be diving into Sense and Sensibility with special guest Karen Swallow Pryor. And then after that, we are diving into Emily Wilson's um, translation of The Odyssey. I mean, you can use any translation, but the one we're going to use is Emily Wilson's translation. We're going to take our time going through The Odyssey a little bit, bring in some, some guests, and try to do that over the rest of the summer. So we had some requests for older books and things like that. So um, in particular, The Odyssey. So it seemed like a good time to try that. We've never done something like that on the show before where we dive into something quite that long or that, you know, um, long. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're going to try. We're going to see how it goes and see if people like it. And if people hate it, then we'll figure out a different approach to those books or something. Um, but uh, also don't forget about our other podcasts like The Commons and The Forma Podcast is coming back. Of course, we've got Libromania this week. I'm recording an episode on... Um, Dostoevsky's gambling problem, actually, and how that influenced his work. So that'll be up later this week. So there's lots of great podcast content going on. So make sure you are subscribed to all those different shows. Um, you know, hopefully shows like Libromania, for example, the former podcast, those don't have homework with them. So hopefully you're able to tune into those. The Daily Poem, of course, doesn't have any homework unless you want to memorize the poems. Um, but uh, yeah, like I said, lots of good stuff. And of course, we are about to send the the spring issue of Forma, our quarterly journal to the printer. So if you would like to get your hands on that, then you can uh, subscribe over at formajournal.com. That is $4 a month or $39 for the year for all four issues, plus some bonus subscriber content that goes out via email. And um, this issue has um, an an essay on Monet and Burns Jones, on architecture, on uh, book reviews by James Matthew Wilson and John Wilson. There's lots of great content in this issue. So if you are interested, you can head over to formerjournal.com, like I said. So I think that's all the, all the business to get out of the way though. So thanks to everyone who uh, supports the show on uh, Patreon as well. If you'd like to learn about that and the cool Close Reads swag we have over there, you can go to patreon.com slash Close Reads. We are grateful for that support. And... Um, Thanks to Logan for producing uh, the podcast. I want to start shouting him out more because he turns these things around pretty quickly. So thanks to Logan for, for that. And um, he also composes... He composed the new music that we have on Close no starting this week. Really? So we got a new theme song that Logan composed himself. He composed music for the new Mason Jar show that we're relaunching uh, with my mom hosting a season. He's been com- doing a lot of music work for us as well so that's pretty cool so shout out that's to Logan amazing good job his Logan. skills so yeah uh, impressive Logan yeah and he, and he just turns he turns you know many episodes out for us every week gets them ready to get up and sound make us sound better uh, fix the technological issues and takes out all our pauses 
like that one. Okay. So <laughs> for Tim McIntosh, for Heidi White, for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, thanks so much for listening. We will be back next week on The Place to Sing. Happy reading. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.